0: Slash James. Netsuite.com slash James. So Yuri Levine started Waze. You've probably used Waze. It's like a mapping program on your car that tells you, oh, there's traffic jam over here. There's a speed trap over here. Here's the best route. It's basically a map application with user-contributed data about where there might be traffic jams right now and and so on. Waze sold for over a billion dollars to Google, and Yuri has gone on to to start other billion-dollar companies that sold for, for billions, and he's been invested in many, many more companies that have been very successful. And I have to say what he wrote, this book is called fall in love with the problem, not the solution. And it's a handbook for entrepreneurs. This is the definitive guide to being an entrepreneur. And we're going to go over as many points as possible in the podcast. How do you find the right idea? How do you start your company? How do you raise money? How do you demo your company? He gives story after story about finding the right product market fit you know, how do you find the right business model? How do you add users? How do you get to a billion users? How do you expand to other countries? But he even goes over like terms that you should care about in the deal sheets when you're raising money or when you're selling the company. And he gets into the specifics, but he also has many, many great stories along the way. Steve Wozniak says on the cover, spoiler alert, this book will change your life and become your Bible if you're an entrepreneur. And that's Steve Wozniak, who, of course, is the co-founder of Apple. And it's a great book. I read it cover to cover, and I'm so happy I was able to ask all my questions to Yuri. I wish I had had this book when I first started my first business. It would have saved me a lot of headaches and probably would have made me a lot more money. So here's Yuri Levine, founder of Waze and many other companies. and author of Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show.
1: So I wanted to say, like, when I use Tesla and I use Waze at the same time, is that because Waze updates in real time, I can see traffic, I can see what's going on, and then I can see, you know, if I need like different route and this and that.
0: But Tesla doesn't. Once the route is set, Tesla is like, that's the route that you have to take. So all of a sudden, if an accident in front, you can't change the route easily. Why can't Tesla incorporate Ways like functionality where the Tesla drivers input information?
1: Maybe there's not enough drivers to make it worthwhile. Um, there are actually enough drivers. I think that from the visibility point of view, Google Maps is way more detailed than Waze. We built ways in order to help drivers on their daily commute. And you don't need a lot of details for your daily commute, and therefore the map itself is less detailed, but the events on the map are actually very important for the drivers.
0: Let me ask you this, Yuri, and, and you answer it more or less in the book, but I'm just curious. My son loves Ways, and he loves inputting information into Ways, like if he sees a traffic jam or a police car or whatever. And I have never inputted information into Waze and I can't imagine why, not that it's a bad thing or a good thing to do, it, but why do people take the time to say, oh, there's a traffic jam here?
1: So number one, we have to realize that uh, different people are different people, as simple as that, right? So some people care and they would like to share and some people care and they don't like to share and some people don't care, right? And the, the reality is that, even when people say, you know what, I will never do anything, um, contribute any information to the map, then I would say that okay, if there is, um, you know, an alert that there is a speed trap or, or a police ahead of you, do you like that? Yes, and do you occasionally say thumb up uh, for the drivers that actually reported that? Yes, then you actually did contribute the information to the live map by a way of uh, of confirming. And so ended up that even people that don't think that they would, they occasionally do.
0: I have to say, i I do because, like every time in, in traffic jams, I'm doing nothing,
1: right? So I just usually look at the phone. and also sometimes they have like certain like gamified type of thing going to waste so that I can collect candy on the street or something, but, like but even that. regardless, at the end of the day, this is about paying forward. right? So so yeah, you when you contribute information, you help drivers that are behind you on the road. And the same way that other drivers that are ahead of you on the road are helping you, you feel sort of an obligated to help the other drivers. And at the end of the day, Waze is a social network of drivers where drivers helping other drivers to avoid traffic jams, to avoid speed traps, to avoid major accidents, and so forth.
0: You know, it's a good point that there's this reciprocity thing going on, which is that you feel that other, you know that other drivers helped you and you do feel like you need to do some reciprocity to kind of repay a little bit. What percentage is it's like one or two percent? what percentage of ways users
1: are actually contribute information as opposed to just using the map features? It's very small because you don't need a lot, right? If there is an accident and there are a thousand drivers passing by, then it's enough that there is one or two that will basically say it's there, right. And this is it. so. The need, the first one is going to be really important. And the first one is actually responding relatively fast. But for a second, I would say the paid forward, the world will become a better place if we do that more. And in my book, at the last part of it, uh, which I call the happy log, I ask people if, you know, if you take something away from the book and that something was valuable for you, then find someone else that you can teach them something valuable for them. Because at the end of the day, I want to make the board a better place. Well,
0: Yuri, we were talking a little bit before the podcast, and I actually would have made a lot more money in my first business if I had had this book. I, I had no idea what entrepreneurship was about. And in this, you you get into so many details in terms of, you know, how you start your business. How do you build product market fit? How do you raise money? how Even details like what you should look for in term sheets, How do you grow the company? How do you get that billion users? And then when you describe the exit, like all the things to look for in a deal in in the exits, like you talk about firing and hiring and how to figure out a business model. There's so many details and it's all backed by stories you've personally experienced. This is valuable information. You've put it all in this book. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, I want to get started with one important point, which you bring up in the book, which I think is really interesting, which is that, For you, frustration is a way to kind of get some insight into what sorts of companies you should start. like, let's take Waze as an example, and you describe the story in the book, but what
1: led you to Waze? But let's think of other, right? Because at the end of the day, you're right, for me, the trigger is always frustration. They get into something that I, I, you know, I will be pulling hair because I'm so frustrated, right? And you look at it and you ask yourself, how come this is how it is, right? And what if we can change that? And then I would say, okay, I'm the only one that is actually being frustrated because of that. Because if I'm the only one, then you know what, a shrink is probably going to be better help than building a startup. But if a lot of people actually have the same problem or the same frustration, then what you really need to do is go and speak with those people and understand their perception of such a problem. And only then start to think about the solution. Now, the issue with frustration is that people hate to be frustrated. They are willing to take an action. And so if you are really addressing frustrations or addressing a problem, then at the end of the day, the engagements of the users are going to be much higher. And the ability to acquire users is going to be dramatically better. And this is where, you know, I I call the book Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution. And, And people often ask me, why? What does it mean, right? And I would say, first of all, is the validation, right? So, so the problem is really for a lot of people actually telling you that this is a real, a real issue for them. And it becomes your mission. And when when you have a mission, then it increases the likelihood of being successful. And you use that mission as the north star of your journey. But then the other part of it, which which is also dramatic, is that the story, Is way easier to be told, right? If I will be here in 2007 and I will tell you, you know what, I'm going to build an AI crowdsource-based navigation system, then you will be nodding your head, but you don't really care. But if I will tell you I'm going to help you to avoid traffic jams, then you do care. And so speaking on the problem creates better engagement with the users and frustration. If people get frustrated from a certain problem, they will be happily to engage.
0: And, you know, I like how you say it's it's your North Star because that allows you to put up with the inevitable problems that every startup has early on. Like with Waze, it took you several years before you would call it good enough to really solve the problems of traffic jams. But all along, you're able to measure progress because you're not measuring how much AI and how much navigation in this system is there. You're measuring are we helping people evade more and more traffic
1: jams? Exactly, right? So the North Star creates a journey with less deviation. And with less deviation, you know, essentially you you increase your likelihood of getting to the destination, right? And this is really important because when you tell yourself, we're going to help drivers to avoid traffic jams, then you don't care about anything else, right? It helps you to focus. And focus is not about what we're doing, it's about what we decide not to do, right? And so in, and throughout the journey, you know, there they were people that told us, oh, you should um, do that for pedestrian, you should do that for taxi drivers, you should do that for truck drivers, um, you should do that for so many other causes that all of them are good. But we remain focused on one objective, and this is helping commuters to avoid the traffic jams. And so we say pretty much no to everything else. And that kept us focused and essentially... We were able to get to the level of good enough and later win the market. Everything we talk
0: about, you speak in the book, more or less. But when Waze started off, it was a blank page. You weren't buying mapping data from anybody. The users, just by having Waze and GPS, you were constructing the maps as users drove. So why did the first 1,000 users download Waze?
1: So so this is you know amazing question because... Um, you would say, okay, wait a minute, I downloaded Waze in order to avoid traffic jams. Now, at the beginning, there was not even a map, obviously not traffic jams. And so why would people care? And the right question should be, who were the first users? Now, the first users are always the same. They are enthusiastic amateurs. They are people that really care about what you're doing, right? And in the case of Waze, they were people that, Really, you know, their hobby was like GPS and GIS, and they care about navigation and maps and so forth. And we gave them a tool that has a promise to control their own destiny, right? So if you update the map, then the map will be updated. If you don't, then it's not, right? And so the first thousand users were what we would usually call in in the user scale innovators. How did you know there would be innovators, though, in this they will be the first one to download, right? They care about your story and about your mission more than they care about the product. And so usually the first users to download any service is going to be the innovators. And if we think about, you know, in the scale of adoptions, and we will take at the entire populations, then we need to, everything that we will look at in large numbers will have normal distribution, right? And the normal distribution in terms of adoptions of new services, or technology, or product, or feature, or whatever it is, we will going to have about 2% that are innovators. And the innovators, they are the enthusiastic amateurs. They are the ones that are going to use that because it's new, and they would like to find out if this new thing is valuable for them or not. The second group, which is about 15% of the population, is called early adopters. Now, the early adopters, as soon as they would get the value, so you'll tell them I'm going to help you to avoid traffic jams, they will download and try. The third group, which is the most important group of users, are called the early majority. and This is about one-third of the population. Now, this group of people, the common denominator for them is that they are afraid of changes. They are not going to download or try new things because... They are afraid of changes and their state of mind is don't rock the boat. Right? Whatever I'm currently doing is good enough for me. Why do I need to change that? And you will need, in, in the product adoption, you will need eventually someone to guide them and show them how to use a new product. Because if you don't, they will not try. They are afraid of the change. The rest of the groups, you'll never get to them. Right? The fourth group is the late majority and these people they will not adopt something new unless they have to right so if you're going to take away what their current product then they might need to use something new if you will make uh, um, gasoline based cars illegal then they will need to switch to electric car right but they will not do that uh, by themselves they will be need to be forced to do that and so the early users were enthusiastic amateurs they were innovators
0: let me ask you about frustration like i when I picture most companies, I can probably imagine what that early frustration was. But let's say a company like Twitter, what do you think was the frustration there that that drove the
1: growth in Twitter? So not all the companies are starting from frustration. Right? Not all the companies starting from a problem. Many of them are basically saying, okay, let's create something new and maybe there will be new use cases for that. Or maybe there will be people that use that for multiple purposes and then we will learn throughout this journey. So, not all the companies are being started by frustration. Some of them are being started with a vision that this is how the future is going to look like. And let's um, build the infrastructure or the capabilities to enable that future. Um, some of them are building, we are starting from, wait a minute, I can build this new amazing technology and we will try to figure out what to do with it later.
0: Like, you know, you have a great experience as an investor and you've started multiple companies that have been billion-dollar exits, out of the hundreds and hundreds of business plans that you must have seen over the past few years, what percentage would you say were frustration-based as opposed to, let's say,
1: out-of-the-box vision-based? You know, this T-shirt with fall in love with the problem, not the solution, I'm wearing that for the last decade or so. And so people know me for looking at the world as um, I only care about doing good and doing well. And and the best way to do that is solve a problem, right? And so if people come to me without a problem, then I don't really care. And they might be extremely successful. This is one thing that we need to realize. None of us has a crystal ball, right? So we don't know what is going to work. But what I do know is that at the end of the day, my mission, my destiny is about value creation. And the simplest way to create value is solve a problem. Yeah and then and then I like how you you have
0: lots of different well actually the first question I wanted to ask was how do you distinguish between your users and your customers so Waze the users are the people who are driving and avoiding traffic jams but that's not who you're selling to you're selling you ultimately it's like Google is Google a search engine or is Google an advertising agency like ultimately Waze was like a billboard company like you sold hyper local advertising to Stores so that people would see, you know, promoted pins for stores that were advertising or retail outlets that were advertising. So, I guess you were solving a frustration for them was to give them an, an outlet for for better advertising. But do you distinguish between users and customers on your mission towards that north star?
1: Actually, yes. You know, the, the, um, when we started Ways, we defined what exactly we are trying to do and what are the priorities that we have, and we basically defined employees as priority number one and then drivers as priority number two. And once you have those priorities set up, then it's easy to build a company around that. Right? And so even when we built it and, and the customers and the paying customers are actually advertisers and local businesses, um, we looked at the way that we kept on asking the users if, you know, if this is not too much for them, if this is not disturbing them. And you know, the answer that we heard the most, we didn't even notice it.
0: Yeah, it's very uh, unobtrusive on ways. It's not like a, this banner that pops up or anything. It's it, it's very unobtrusive. And, and you describe how you, you know, there's all sorts of business models. You could have charged subscription to the users, for instance, or you could do advertising, or you could have freemium and maybe tiered subscriptions. Did you consider charging subscription to the users?
1: So, um... So we needed the users for the ecosystem, right? Because at the end of the day, we, the drivers, are generating all the information that is being used by the other drivers. So we need a lot of drivers in order to have traffic information. Um, And one of the biggest concerns, and this is, by the way, why Waze created their own map, is that if we're going to charge money for that, then we are not going to have a lot of users. If we don't have a lot of users, then we are not going to enjoy a good traffic information, a good actionable traffic information. So it's a flywheel that works, that uh, a lot of users creates better data, better data brings more users, but the price is an issue, right? So it has to be free in order to win the market. And uh, once you decide that this is going to remain free and you're not going to charge money for, for subscription, then you will need to figure out different business models, right? Because Waze is a business company, right? We do need to make money and at the end of the day, we do need to become profitable. And then I would say, in many cases, people would like to consider different business models or they are being creative about business models, but I would go back to basic, right? So tell me what is the use case, and I will tell you what is the right business model for you. As simple as that. So Waze has high frequency of use, a lot of users, and long durations of use. And these will create a business model that is basically advertisement. If you would have a lot of users and high frequency of use, but low durations of use, then advertisement is not going to work, right? So just imagine that. Just think of, uh, you know, WhatsApp. High frequency of use, low durations of use. There is no advertisement. It doesn't work.
0: What What about Google though? Google is high frequency,
1: but low duration. Um, so Google is different, right? So Google have actually a relatively long duration because you need to choose now the alternatives. Mm. So when you're searching Google, then then you are actually have an intent and you are searching for a purpose, right? So you're going to follow the purpose and you're going to follow the leads that you will get the search results that are based on your search. And these are definitely being advertised. And promoted. So, if you are paying for a specific uh, word. But then at the end of the day, today, most of the advertisement that you're getting are actually on the home browser. So, you're searching something, and then for whatever you're going to do on the home browser, you're going to get that promoted to you forever.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I remember back around 2000 or 1999, there was some computer company that was trying to subsidize the cost of the computer by selling advertising on the computer. So it was like, I think it was e-computer. I forget the name of the company, but that's an example where it's low frequency use, meaning there's not as many users. So it didn't work. And that's why computers, you have to go to the store and buy them as opposed to like, depending on advertising. So this is an interesting way to look at it. Like Instagram though, there's advertising. And again, but actually that turns out to be higher duration because people just scroll for hours on Instagram. So they see things on the feed, same with Facebook. And you know, it's interesting with Instagram. When Instagram started, there were already a lot of apps for storing photos, but it it turned out you had to just, I don't know if the founders were frustrated, but they discovered a frustration. People wanted filters so they could look better on the photos. And Instagram was the first photo app to have these filters to make you look better.
1: I I don't know if they knew that in advance. But they were the first one to become successful. right? So so there were a lot of... uh filters beforehand and, uh, um, you know, trying even to um, automatically make people look better. But at the end of the day, they were not successful.
0: Was there ever a time when, I mean, you've been involved and you've started several companies that were based on your frustrations, and you outline a lot of these in the book. Was there ever a time when you realized it was your personal frustration and not the frustration of the marketplace, or you had to pivot your North Star because... Your frustration didn't take into account other
1: things? The first thing that I always did is validate my frustrations with other people. And this is what you really need to do first, right? So as soon as you think, when you think of a problem and and a big problem, something that it's really worth solving, then you need to go and speak with other people and understand their perception of the problem and only then start to think about building a solution. Um, And so that was always the case for me. Um, and therefore, there was never, a, never a case that uh, that turns out that uh, that the problem is not valid. What happened occasionally is that the problem disappeared. And, and I'll give you an example, right? And this is maybe less appealing to um, to the to the U.S. users, but uh, but it was very appealing to the Israeli users. So in the U.S., if you order a package from Amazon. Even if you're not at home, you're gonna get the package, right? If you live in a single family house, then they would leave it by the door front. And if you live in a multiple family house, then then they would leave it with the doorman, right? But in Israel, if you're not at home, they're not going to deliver you the package. And guess what? The time that the mailman is going on on the tour, you're not at home, you're at work, right? And so You'll never get the package. And what you get instead is a note that you need to go to the post office to collect your package. And this is really frustrating because, again, the post office is open only in the regular hours and you are at work. And they usually have long lines and no parking. And uh, and they ended up to be frustrated. And so we build a service, an application, you essentially scan that note that you got from the post office and scan your driver's license and someone will pick that up for you. Right? So exactly like Uber Eats or DoorDash or any other service that someone is going to do that for you. Um, and then the Israeli post office actually started to make some significant changes and they started to deliver packages to 7-Eleven near, near your house and uh, open up the postal offices mm-hmm. until midnight and, and all of a sudden the problem disappeared. And we decided to shut down the company because the problem was no longer there.
0: But, you know, there was another thing about this company that was fascinating to me when you're telling this story, which is that at first you guys didn't really build an app for this. Like you were manually seeing what people were sending you and then you would you know, figure out how to pick it up from the post office and deliver it to them. And I love this way of testing out a product idea before you even build the product
1: right and and you're right this is exactly what we did instead of building a product and then trying to deploy that we basically first of all deployed right and so we actually used the uh, uh, whatsapp or messenger as a way to ind- to communicate with uh, with the users and they would say okay this is the note that I got and they scan that and send that over um, messenger and we scheduled the delivery time to their house through this uh, chat And based on that, we basically realized, okay, here is the willingness. People are willing to make an extra effort for that. People are willing to pay. We we figure out when people actually like the package to be delivered, and this is after dinner, because they're probably already at home, and and so forth. And uh, we ended up with not even writing a single line of code before we have validated the demand, the need, the business model, the way that it works. And only then we went to start to think about, okay, so how does the application look like?
0: This is such an important concept because I think many people, they could spend months or a year or so building a product and then they deploy it and they realize, oh, it wasn't the solution we thought. It it didn't really solve the problem. Or or they raise money and it just gets into a mess. And I, I think this is very valuable. But the question is, valuation so you were basically with this company and even though you shut it down with this company you were really at first a service company pretending to be a product company and product companies of course are a lot more valuable than service companies you knew all along though you wanted to be a product company when should someone just be a service company like an ad agency
1: for instance Um, so it's a matter of scale right because at the end of the day if you're a service company then you can solve that to you know the entire state of Israel, and you will have local operation in each and every city, and uh, um, and you will become profitable, and you will become a very nice service company that is profitable. But if you want that to be able to scale and become you know global market leader. Then you will need to support that with the ability to scale. And the ability to scale is usually about technology, right? Because then the technology can be deployed in multiple places. And once you do that, then you are actually in a position of creating valuations of a product company and not a service company. And you actually have indefinite scalability.
0: It's interesting because a service company with 10 million in revenues and 1 million in profits and a product company with 10 million in revenues and 1 million in profits. So all the same revenues and profits. If you're the product company, you're worth 10 times as much as the service company because of the scalability factor. Exactly. And this is one of the things I wish I had known in the nineties. So, and I, and it, you kind of, as you point out in the book, you have to go through many bad experiences to figure out what the good experiences are. I think your book provides a shortcut for that, but, I mean, is there any way to avoid all, you know, you mentioned it's just nonstop failure at first. Is there, are there ways to avoid that?
1: No, but there is ways to do less.
0: Yeah. I mean, knowing things like this, like listening to this conversation, reading your book, I guess would help. Like, so I'm almost resentful of the people who are reading this now as opposed to when I was starting out. (laughs) But let's say you validate your frustration. So you validate the idea for the company, the vision for the company. You build it and start to deploy it and there's people using it and there's people who love it but at what point do you plateau and decide to not do it because because who knows maybe the market wasn't big enough who knows why something plateaus but when when have you seen a case or when have you experienced where an idea starts off strong but then it plateaus the story hasn't changed like it did with your example like the the laws don't change but
1: uh just for whatever reason the the company plateaus. So, at the end of the day, and this is really important, if we want to describe building a startup, then I would say this is a journey, right? And it's a long journey, and it's a roller coaster journey, and it's a journey of failures. So, a long roller coaster journey of failures. And each one of them is really important to realize because it's a long one until you get traction, right? Until you figure out product market fit. And if you don't figure out product market fit, you will die, as simple as that. If you do, and product market fit is basically saying, I'm creating value to my users, to my customers. And if you create value, then you have a reason for your existence. Now, If you solve a big problem, then you are going to end up as a big company. If you solve a smaller problem, then you end up as a smaller company. But if you create value, you are likely to become successful. And this is really depending on the size of the success based on the amount of value that you create. And in many cases, you tend to think that, okay, wait a minute, this is going to create a lot of value to a lot of users. And you end up with realizing that it's actually, for a lot of users, it's very low amount of value, but for few users, it's actually a lot of value. And you end up as a niche player, and the niche player is way smaller than what you had at the beginning. And you will need to decide if you like this business or not. And if you don't, then the, and the business is good, then find someone else to run the business. And if you do, then keep on doing that.
0: Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. while I'm away, and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, Why do so many people, I call this the smoking crack bias. People start a business. They think it's huge billion dollar idea. But when other people see it, or like when I look at it, I'm like, it's it's not solving any problem at all. It's like a billion dollar idea in this guy's mind. He's smoking crack about it. Why are so many people fooled into thinking that their idea is the best idea ever?
1: Look, people like their own ideas right and uh, and uh, for me then this is why i'm saying fall in love with the problem you are not going to fall in love with a small problem if you felt in love with the solution then then you're trying to basically convince everyone that this is a big a big company but if people don't have the problem then it's not a big company or less likely to become a big company
0: but like take steve jobs as an example so nobody really knew before he did it that, hey, we want a phone, a web surfer, and music and movies all on the same device. He had to kind of educate the market that they did want this. And I think a lot of people look to that example and say, I'm going to just, I have to educate the market that this is what they want. But that's the opposite of what you're saying. It's much easier to think of a frustration that solves things.
1: That 10s I'm not Steve Jobs, right? <laughs> There's a, one of the kind, maybe. Elon Musk is second to it, to Steve Jobs in that sense that created something that people don't didn't even know that they want right but they have created a masterpiece in the sense that people actually have very high desire to have that and and look go back to 2007 when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone right at the time, Microsoft was in a leading position in the market for the smartphone. They had the Windows Mobile operating system running on Samsung and Motorola and Nokia and pretty much every other phone on the market. Right? Mm-hmm. And they saw the iPhone. Steve Ballmer at the time, CEO of Microsoft, said this will never work. He right? said that in other words, but essentially he said this will never work. And obviously today we are in a very different place. right? And so when revolution happens, we, in many cases, don't see that it's coming until it's too late. And in many cases, for entrepreneurs, their guidelines or their motto would be, first, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, and then they lose.
0: But I really like the model you kind of outlined in the book, which is focusing on falling in love with the problem as opposed to, like you said, Steve Jobs is one of a kind. But many people think, oh, this is the way you start a company is you have this vision, and then you educate a new market for it. But I think the model you describe is a little bit easier to understand why these things are successful businesses. Oh, it's because people are willing to pay to solve their
1: problems. Exactly, and, and again, Steve Jobs, one of a kind. And Elon Musk, one of a kind. And, uh, and if people want to think that they are, you know, these types of entrepreneurs that create value, significant value with a vision, It does happen, but not a lot. And you're very careful, too. Like, even
0: though you believe in the vision and you for all these different companies you're involved in, you believe in the vision and you believe in the size of the market and so on, you're very careful about the metrics you analyze to see that you're progressing towards that North Star. Like, what describe some of the metrics you look at when when evaluating whether a company you're involved in is is on the right path.
1: So you're right, because if I don't look at the metrics as the objectives of measurement, then I will be drinking my own Kool-Aid. Right At the end of the day, um, I will tell myself stories that I would like to hear, Uh, but numbers don't lie. And in particular, if you have the right metrics in place, then there are two things that are going to happen. Number one, you're going to get better. If you measure, you will get better. If you don't, then you tell yourself stories and you might not even improve. And number two is that you only focus on what is really important. Because in many cases, you know, people will, and I get a lot of emails from entrepreneurs, they are telling me that, oh, we have so-and-so users, right? And then the first question that I would ask them is about the activity of those users. So how many of them were active, right? How many of them were active in the last month? And what is their retention? Because at the end of the day, the most important number is retention. If we are trying to define product market fit, then I would say product market fit equals we create value. If we create value, they will come back. As simple as that, right? Now, if they don't come back, you don't create value. And then the retention will become the most significant metric for companies that are in the phase of trying to figure out product market fit. And the most companies, most startups, most early stage startups, this is exactly what they are. They need to figure out product market fit. And and we want to think about it as, okay, what's the big deal? So it's going to take me three months and I figure out product market fit. Well, it takes way longer. In fact, you never heard of a company that did not figure out product market fit. That company simply died. That's it. But when you think of companies that did figure out product market fit, then I want Two, two observations of that that are important. So, so think of all the applications that you're using every day, right? Facebook and Uber and, and Waze and searching Google and, and whatever it is, and Netflix, and ask yourself, what is the difference between the application that you're using today and the first time that you have used that? And the answer is that there is no difference. We are searching Google today the same way that we search Google for the first time in our life. We are using Waze today or Uber today the same way that we did for the first time. So once you figure out product market feed, you don't change that anymore. You don't change the value that you bring to your users. You change a lot of things on the background. You, you create business model, which is completely different. You do other things, but you don't change the value proposition to the users. The journey from before, when you started until you got to product market fit is a long journey. And that could be years, right? That was three and a half years for Waze. That was five years for Microsoft. That was ten years for Netflix, right? That was years for Google, years for every product that you want to think of. It was a matter of years until they become good enough. And they become good when you become good enough, then the retention is high and people are coming back.
0: And so with with Waze, I'm I'm trying to understand. Uh, more precisely, the the product market fit. So you knew, though, the product was going to be something that was maps plus, uh, like you say, a social network for drivers, a way for drivers to inform each other of traffic jams or police cars or speed traps, whatever. So that's the product. The market is the universe of all drivers. It seems like you knew right away the product market fit.
1: Oh, what you know and how to get there is two different things, right? So, so we knew what is it that we are trying to achieve, but getting there is is a journey of failures, right? So we, you know, we started in Israel, and then it turns out to be beautiful. Working in Israel actually was pretty good, and we said, okay, wait a minute. We started in Israel from a blank page. There was not even a map, right? And so we can start anywhere, and that will become good enough the same way that we did in Israel. And so in two thousand and ten. We actually made ways available everywhere in the market, and we promoted that with, you know, with the story that that we are going to help drivers to avoid traffic jams, right? So this is a good enough story for every driver to basically say, "Okay, wait a minute, I like that. Let me download it." And and again, as I mentioned earlier, it's only going to be the, the early adapters that will be downloading it at the beginning, um, and then it turns out that it's not good enough, and you will try to get a route from going from your home to your office, and the route didn't make sense. And uh, um, and so you basically say, wait a minute, this is a piece of crap, I'm not going to use that, and you churned. And what we have seen is that we really have very, very low retention in multiple places. right? So it was not good enough in the US, it was not good enough in Western Europe, it was not good enough in in most of Latin America, it was not good enough anywhere. right? It was actually good enough in four places, in in Latvia, in Czech Republic, in Slovakia, and in Ecuador. And that's about it. And so what you do is you realize that it's not good enough and you go and speak with drivers that will um, tell you what doesn't work for them, right? And so we heard them and we built the next version and we know that this, this next version is actually addresses all the issues that we've heard. And we know that this is it and it's not. So we're doing it all over again, right? So we speak with the drivers that tell us what doesn't work, we try, we build the next version, we know that we have addressed everything, and it's not. And again, and again, and again, iteration after iteration, each time you go with the conviction that this time it's going to work. And it was a whole year of iterations, trying, And you know, in some of those iterations, you make baby step forward, right? So you improve by, by basis point, the retention, right? Not by 10% or 20%, but, but by a basis point. In some cases, it actually turns out to be even worse than before. There were a few leapfrogs that actually made a difference. And, and the challenge is that you don't know which one is going to be the leapfrog, right? If you would know, then do them up first, right? Um, a journey of failures, iterations after iteration, after iteration, after iteration, until it's starting to become good enough. And then when it starts, then you see that it's working beautifully, right? Because of the of the flywheel that creates value as uh, um, as it's becoming starting to become good enough. And then it started <laughs> to become good enough in LA, and then in San Francisco, and Atlanta, and Washington DC, and New York, and Chicago. One metropolitan after that, and in Europe, that was you know one country after that. It was Italy first, and then Netherlands, and Sweden, and Spain, and France, and one country after that.
0: What was the big difference? What was the biggest leapfrog?
1: There were multiple leapfrogs, right? But one of them is a bit complex because when navigation system looks at the map and the commuter is being represented as a graph, so there are segments which are road and then nodes which are the intersections. right? And for each one of the intersections, we knew all the information that you have in an intersection is which turns are allowed. Now, because the map was crowdsourced, we did not have all the turns. And so all navigation systems in the world, they basically use the data. And based on the data, they will say, if the turn is is not allowed, then it's not allowed. And we switch the concept and we basically say, if the turn is not allowed, we don't know if it's not allowed. So we will assume that it is allowed, unless you don't turn. That's
0: interesting. So... I guess probably more turns are allowed at intersections than not. So probably the statistics of turns is that most turns are not against the law or whatever. Right. And 99% of the cases, turns are allowed. Ah, see, so that makes a big difference. Yeah. And did you consider licensing navigation data during this
1: period or map data? We couldn't, right? Because um, navigation data is very expensive data. And um, if we would license that, you know, you pay a lot of license for something that you want to give away for free. It doesn't work.
0: Yeah, because then you need the business model to support
1: it. Exactly. And then the, the, the only business model to support it was um, that you are going to have paying subscribers, right? And then you don't have a lot of users if you if you have paying subscribers. Right. So you want to be able to later replace it with your home-built data.
0: You know, but it's interesting. Also, you talk to people when when you weren't finding that product market fit. Like when you released in the U.S., you would talk to people about what didn't work. Why is it the case that talking to customers who don't like you is more valuable than
1: talking to the customers who like you? So, in your journey to try to figure out product market fit, I want you to think of users going through a funnel, right? So the top of the funnel is people download the app, right? And then the second phase is maybe they started the app for the first time, and and then they need to figure out what to do with it, and then they, it needs to actually do what they wanted to do with it and create value for them, and eventually they are coming back. Each one of those phases is actually could be a barrier for some of the users, right? So. If you ask people to register, then they don't even know why they should register, then that will become a barrier for some users that will basically say, I don't want to register, and this is it, right? And end of the story. And you don't know about this user anymore because they they churn their process of becoming a user um, in the middle of it. You really want to speak with those people and ask them only one question. Why? Why did you quit? Why did you decide that this is not for you? Because then you can learn. If you ask people that are already using the product and very happy with it, what they think, you already know what they think. They are happy with it. They're coming back. And if you ask them, did you have any obstacles getting there, they will say no, because even if they did, they don't remember it.
0: I guess some of those initial users in the U.S., for instance, told you, oh, I was trying to get to the office and it was sending me the wrong way. Exactly. And then, you know, a lot of times when people start a business, one of the first things they think is I have this great idea. I'm going to raise money. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to build a product basically in that order. But often you can't raise money until you have a product and and until you could demonstrate that the product is growing. When should someone or should someone at all think about raising
1: money? So I would change that order, right? So for a second, you say that you think of something and then you raise money and then you quit your job and so forth. I would say, no, you have to quit your job before you raise money. Because if you don't, you're basically telling an investor, look, I don't really believe in my product. I'm not willing to sacrifice anything. But if you are willing to sacrifice your money, then I'm willing to hop on the, on the wagon, right? And, uh, and the reality is that you will need to make the leap of faith before you can actually have, you know, bring other people on board, before you can be able to raise capital and so forth. And this leap of faith, my recommendation, it should be based on validations of the problem. Because in many cases, what happened is that you go and speak with people about the problem and they sent you on a mission. And then you feel empowered, basically, based on the feedback that you get from other people to go on to this journey and you make the leap of faith and the leap of faith is really sacrificed a lot, right? Because you you essentially need to be in a position where your passion for that change is way higher than the fear of failure plus the alternative cost. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills.
0: You know, you worked for some earlier tech companies before you started Waze. So maybe you had a little bit more flexibility. What if someone's just like dead broke and they're working their full-time job, but then at night they're trying to work on their startup. And for them, how do they think about raising money or when should they raise money?
1: It's going to be challenging, particularly in these days. Um, and, and you know, if we say that building a startup is a roller coaster journey, then um, raising capital is roller coaster journey in the dark. You don't even know what's coming. But at the end of the day, look, with, with your passion and commitment, and you might be able to convince investors to invest. And without that, it's going to be very hard, right? So if the message that you are delivering to investors is that, look, I'm not committed or I'm not willing to commit unless you are committing, uh, then it's not going to work. Now, at the end of the day, raising capital turns out that they're the most important part is that investor needs to believe in the CEO and in the story. And there are two things that they need to believe in the CEO. They need to believe that the CEO can deliver. And they need to believe that we want that CEO to deliver. And then the story itself is: look, the CEO has to learn how to tell a good story.
0: You know, you mentioned in the book that sometimes venture capitalists decide within seconds of meeting a CEO whether they like the CEO or not. So, what are some like first impression things someone can do when first time they're meeting a
1: venture capitalist? So you're right; it takes seconds. Right, first impressions is a matter of seconds, and it doesn't matter if this is an investor meeting a CEO. Or um, you are meeting a new candidate for a position, or you're going on a date and meet the date. It's always a matter of seconds until you establish your first impression. And then there might be a few more minutes that you either let that first impression to solidify or you change that. And so if this is the case, then you have to start your story with the strongest point at the very early phase. Because by the time you'll get there, maybe they already made up their mind. And so in general, if people ask me, so how does in, in first, first meeting investor presentation should look like? Then I would say start at the strongest point at the beginning. Then make sure that everyone realizes that this is a big market. Then remember that investors are also users. So if they don't think that they are going to use the product, they are less likely to invest. Or if they don't think that... Someone that they know would use that product, then they're less likely to invest. And then you repeat the strongest point at the end. And this is it.
0: I like how, with uh, your first VC firm that invested in Ways, you got the addresses of all the partners and made sure their homes were definitely on the map, so that they they can use Ways and uh, you know while doing due diligence on the product.
1: That was a key insight. You know, we realized and and you know, we had one of the partners at the fund that wanted to invest and told us that we're gonna have a hard time to convince the rest of them because they don't think that crowdsource can work. And we said, okay, so give us the home addresses of all the partners and we'll make sure that they're on the map and this is how they are going to believe. And sure enough, during the presentation, the managing director of the fund asked me, So so what you're telling me is that this model of crowdsource, it's possible that my house will be on the map. And I told him Look, I don't know where you live, but if you'll tell me where you live, we can find out, right? And he told us, I knew that the house is on the map, but I actually didn't know where he lives. I didn't know which one of the addresses is his, right? Right. Uh, so it was technically true. It, it was technically true, even though that I knew for sure that the house is on the map, right? And he said where he lives, and we open up the map, and it, the house was there, right? And so he turns that moment, he switched from a non-believer into a believer, And we kept on doing that, you know, when we tried to raise the B round, that was in Sand Hill Road. And we basically said every time that there is a drive of someone that on Sand Hill Road, then we are going to validate that ride. And if the ride was not good enough, then we are going to make sure that we correct all errors in the maps that the next time that they are going to try the same route is going to work. And then the system, or actually us, send them a message on behalf of the system telling them that, okay, Waze is actually learning very fast, and you should try that again tomorrow. And when they try that tomorrow, it did work, right? And, uh, and we convinced them that the learning is actually working, and so forth. It's interesting. When you were
0: raising a later round, You know, by then you had already found your product market fit, and it was interesting to see, though, You know, in a sense, a venture capitalist is a customer, too. They're Doing things that solve a problem for them, and one of the particularly if it's a tr- strategic investor. So you had Microsoft invest because they didn't even know whether or not they should care about Waze, but they did care about Google. Exactly. <laughs> and they 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 didn't want Google to dominate the mapping area before they could. So they made a strategic investment in Waze. So knowing the agendas of your investors is also critical.
1: Very critical, and 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 strategic investment and. Um... This is something that a lot of people um, tend to forget. When when someone is coming as a strategic investor, then the value for them needs to be dramatically bigger than the value of your company. Hmm. For Microsoft at the time, losing to Google is not an option. Now, eventually, they did not do anything more dramatic than that, but they basically say, okay, we're going to make our bet, and our bet is, is going to be investing in ways that in the case that we decide to compete we can
0: in their deal with you did they have a right of refusing acquisitions google ended up buying you did microsoft have to approve of that deal or do they have the option to offer you a higher price they must have built something in to make sure their competitor couldn't just automatically buy you
1: think about the following right so let's say that you are um building uh, something that is improving uh, um, airline utilization, right? So so you are going to become significant for all the airlines. And now one of the airlines is coming to you and say, you know what, we would like to acquire you. What you're actually going to do next tomorrow morning, regardless, is go and speak with the rest of the airlines really fast, regardless whether or not you had any sort of agreement you realize that the only way that you can increase the value is through competition. And if this is relevant for one of the airlines, then it's obviously going to be relevant for the rest of the airlines as well. And it's going to be relevant for two reasons, right? So number one, if it's valuable, then it's valuable for all. Number two, if someone is going to acquire you, then I cannot acquire you anymore. And and therefore, this is why you need to trigger the competition, regardless if you have any sort of uh, strategic investment with right of first refusal, refusal, or right of first notice, or whatever. You are going to do that anyhow.
0: Hmm. Yeah, good point. And so, before you had the offer from Google for one point one five billion, you had an earlier offer for four hundred million, which you did not accept. Now regardless of your percentage of the company, this would have been a life-changing moment for you and and your partners. And I know there were technical reasons why you had to refuse the offer, but do you want personally to take that offer and were you disappointed that the deal didn't happen
1: at $400 I thought that um, we already had dialogues about raising capital at a higher valuation than that. And so obviously we all thought that this is a, um, a discouraging price and not an encouraging price. And even though that it meant uh, a life-changing event for for all of us, um, that uh, was not the right price. And so we said
0: no. But you also had that example from 1999, where, again, valuations were over the hill, ridiculous. But uh, you you, you had a friend who had an offer for some huge amount of money that would have changed his life. And then ultimately, then the internet bus. he didn't take it. An investor talked him out of it. He didn't take the deal. And six years later, he sold and didn't make anything you know, because of liquidation preferences. So how did you know you weren't falling into that trap?
1: So the right answer, do you want the right answer or the, or the correct answer? Uh, probably both. <laughs> De- depends what the answers are. The reality is that you don't know you simply don't know. Yeah. And uh, every time that there is a proposal, then I would urge you to seriously consider it. Um, but you don't know. And when we make a decision, we don't know what would have happened if we will make a different decision or choose a different path. And this is true for all the decisions that we are going to make in our life, are right decisions or no decisions. Now at the time it looks like we are growing really rapidly. We figure out so this is the end of 2012. We we in 2012 we grew faster than the entire industry combined, right? And so we look at it and we say, okay, we haven't figured out business model yet. Um, but we figure out growth and this is word of mouth. We figure out product market fit because people are coming back. We are definitely on a pace of becoming the market leader in in you know in the in the driving app, um, we have one competition, which is Google, um, and uh, um, and that means that we will have um, a lot of opportunities for being acquired by someone else, um, and therefore we should say no to um, to a valuation that we didn't like, um, and uh, and it turns out to be working for us, right? But at the same way. It could have been the last offer that we ever got, and we will end up with uh, completely unsuccessful. And, uh, and then I would write a different book that's saying uh, how to say, how not to say no, right? Yeah. And when you finally did the deal, and obviously
0: this was a, a life changing moment, how did it change your life?
1: So, um, People would like to think that, okay, wait a minute, so you sold a company for a billion dollars, so why didn't you retire, right? And I said, no, I just now got some funding that I can actually keep on with my dream and make a bigger impact and fund more startups. And so this is one part of it. The other part of it is that, you know, people would like to think, okay, wait a minute, you sold a company for a billion dollars, then obviously somewhere in in one of your pockets you must have a billion dollars. But no, I had less than 3% of the company at the day of the acquisition. And then you pay taxes and then you get divorced and you ended up with way less money than what people would like to think. And still half of my money was reinvested in different startups.
0: Well, obviously, you have learned so much from the process. This book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, a handbook for entrepreneurs, I want to repeat, it's not the story of ways. It's not one story about entrepreneurship. You have so many sections, like very specifically, like how to do a demo, how to do a slide deck, how do you do a presentation, how do you evaluate a term sheet. What metrics do you use to measure the growth of your company? How do you manage investors, fire people, hire people, even the exit? What deal terms need to be negotiated for the exit? This is such a valuable guide. It really is like the subtitle, A Handbook for Entrepreneurs is just as powerful as the title. It's completely an A to Z handbook for entrepreneurs. Yuri Levine, co-founder of Waze. The book is Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Good luck with the book. It's a great book. And uh, and thanks for writing it. I wish, again, I had had this book a long time ago.
1: Thank you. And you know, you you say that. And when I approached uh, Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, to write me an endorsement, he read the book and he said, I wish I had that when I started.
0: Uh, yeah, a lot of people are going to be saying that in the next you know few weeks and months and maybe years. So... Good luck as you go on this journey of book publishing. Thank you.
1: I love my cat, Tiger.
0: And as my best friend, we speak our own language. What's that? You love your litter. He does, because I use Fresh Step Outstretch Litter absorbs 50% more waste and odor and requires less changing compared to Fresh Step Multicat. Less changing means more time playing. (laughs) Right, tiger? That's a yes. Find Fresh Step Outstretch cat litter in the pet aisle. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates.